whether it's political or whether it's in your space or whatever your space is, then you need to be following those opinions because otherwise you're not really doing your job properly, are you, if you're just listening to the people who agree with your policy and with your strategy. Welcome to episode four of season three of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital and change. I'm Zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. On today's episode, we talk to Dr. Vonda Viporska, who is Executive Director at the Equality Trust and a winner of Social CEOs. Absolutely. Big up Social CEOs. More on that in a later season, I guess, as we get towards the end of the year. Before we introduce our interview with Vonda, Zoe, anything caught your eye in the uh, in the last week of tech news? Nothing on the tech news front, but I know the news gen has very much been dominated by one big story over the last few days, which I know you're desperate to talk more about. Do you want to take us through it? Yeah, so... On the face of it, you know, what has the European Super League got to do with digital transformation and, and digital leadership? Where well, you might say not a lot, but the more that I sort of dig around this subject, which is obviously dear to my heart, I think there is a, a lot here that's about the, the, the sort of the overall digital transformation of football. So, the basic story is a proposed European Super League, twelve clubs, six of which are in uh, the Premier League at the moment, including Arsenal, which is the club I support and have a season ticket for, so a vested interest in this are creating a breakaway competition the breakaway competition is meant to be midweek it's meant to be sort of outside of the the existing premier league and the existing structures across europe Uh, several other european clubs have been involved conspicuous by their absence of the germans and the french the german bundesliga is is a is a brilliant model and i wish something had happened way back when that meant we we'd stuck to this model too where 51% of the club has to be owned by the fans. So they can have 49% invested in from outside, but 51% has to be in control of the fans. And this would never have happened if we'd been in that situation in England. Yeah, so it's funded by JP Morgan. There's a huge, huge cash pot going into this. So let's not pretend that the main thrust behind this isn't greed and capitalist behaviour. That's that's where this sort of sits more fundamentally. And we'll link to the latest update. There's, there are updates coming all the time. A lot of the clubs haven't actually come out and said anything about this, but there will be updates all the time. So we'll post in the show notes, we'll post something to the latest story. But there is a story on Wired that went out today that I really liked, where this really does start to hold a mirror up to the whole sort of attention economy. And I I think that really looks at things like digital transformation, consumer behaviour, big data and and how data is used for us and against us, I guess, in in this situation. But I think this is about digitalisation. It's about a product that these capitalists feel needs to change because their interpretation of the data says that there is a younger uh, global audience that isn't location-based. So, you know, Arsenal is North London. I live in North Hertfordshire. It's a hop, skip and a jump for me to get to the ground. I'm not exactly local, but the idea is that this is a global audience. Now there are people in China and Africa and uh, masses and massive millions and millions of fans that that love these clubs and have taken it um, global. But the way that it is consumed is vastly different. So if I think of my kids, they will sit and watch a 90-minute football match, but will they do it without distraction? No, not really. They might run into the other room and do something else, have another conversation. Do they watch the whole football highlights? They watch the bits they want to of match of the day. They watch a whole bunch of football on YouTube. They watch clips of the goals. So one argument was that 
the data tells us that lots of people like to watch the the goals as they go in on Twitter because they can't afford the subscriptions to the multiple services that the games are on. And that's all true. I use Twitter to look at the goals if I'm out and about and I've heard that there's a, a fantastic goal, but I still fundamentally would prefer to go and sit in a stadium with 60,000 people and watch a game from 90 minutes all, 90 minutes all the way through because that's the product that I've bought into and that's the product that has been there for, for the last few years. There was um, a comment overnight as well from the president of Real Madrid who said, young people of today can't sit through a whole football match, so perhaps we need to make the matches shorter. I mean, this is just atrocious. Like, there's just nothing good about this stuff. So I, I think I think that point about digitalization is is key. The data side of it, my my kids and and there's this sort of stipulation in there that YouTube is by far and away the biggest um, platform for football, and you can watch football highlights and you can watch skills videos and things like that. So you could argue, and I think the Wired article argues that you could start to see points given in games for skills, for example. Oh, that player did the best skill in the game, so give them an extra point. It's just nonsense. But I guess it does link to the fact that for this podcast, you know, we do consume our TV content and the things that we watch differently now. We had this conversation with Maggie Philbin that we don't necessarily watch TV as it's broadcast. We watch TV on demand. We want those streaming services to serve up that type of, of content. So it makes, makes sense that the clubs would explore how digital can play a role in the dissemination of content and the dissemination of the game and their intellectual property. I absolutely buy into that. And obviously it's a key thing. But I think the biggest fear for me is that this is clear sort of capitalist greed they're building a world for them. They're building a world that doesn't include me. It doesn't include my kids. It doesn't include the other football fans that I know. We're being branded as legacy fans, that there is a fan of tomorrow which just doesn't look like us, doesn't come to the stadiums, doesn't sort of walk in, in the door on a Saturday afternoon at three o'clock. And that, I think, is, is a big mirror up to society. And it just smacks to me of the disregard for us as human beings, as participants in this whether it's sport, whether it's life, whether it's politics, we're being ignored on, once again um, by money. And money is money is talking loud, more loudly than, than it should be. And I think we just need to be aware that we need to make a conscious effort that we're mindful that we don't let them do this. So we use our voices and we fight out against this in exactly the same way as we would fight against discrimination or poverty or any of the other things that are trying to be brushed under the carpet because we're all distracted by this thing called COVID and we're not listening. So it's a bit of a rant, but I think there is a huge part of this, which is around digital, the experience, consumer behaviour and change. And so I think it's something that's important that we, we include. I agree with that. Um, I mean, as you know, I don't know a huge amount about sport, although ironically we have talked a lot about sport and, and management and, and leadership in, in past, and we'll be talking about it in future episodes as well with some of our guests. But what strikes me about this as someone who's very much an outsider to this whole scene is that it seems like it's really going to commodify even further what is a, a very emotional, very personal experience to a lot of people and and that strikes me as one of the things that's driving the understandable big pushback against this this stuff also I mean um, it'd be interesting to know what their evidence base is for some of their assumptions about the fans and how they're behaving as you say a lot of it seems to be driven by finances 
But also, what about those other experiences that are partly offline as well? So, you know, your kids, you know, going to the watching football with you and things like that, that's something they're going to remember forever. And and that's not something that I think can necessarily be commoditized. And I was looking at Wired articles you were talking and what's going to happen to local clubs now and local clubs surely I'd imagine are very important for things like finding that football talent in communities and making sure that football's a community sport as well god I sound like I'm pitching for a slot on match of the day I mean I really obviously do not know anything (laughs) about football at all but even as someone who's very much an outsider I can see that this doesn't seem like a, a good development no, not at all. Yeah, just to further add sport into the mix, we do have uh, an interview coming up with the um, the CEO of Switch the Play Foundation, which is a charity that helps sports people get into work after sport. So perhaps um, we can link the two things together and they might have an influx of unhappy footballers who um, are starting to blood the market because I just think yeah, nothing nothing really good can, can come of this. We might look back in five years' time and say, well, nothing's really happened. The world didn't come to an end. It just feels like a lot of the stuff that we're being subjected to as, as as citizens at the moment is well they're not watching so we'll just change things while they're not watching you know we're not in the stadiums we're not in the streets and these changes are being put through without us or, or with the hope that we're not paying attention but we're here to let you know that we are paying attention and we won't stand for it and I think um, hopefully that that message will, will come through loud and clear. Yes I think any digital product which is causing this much of a reaction amongst its users and and also the players. So from what I understand, a lot of players didn't actually know that this was going to happen. That is not a good thing. That's not a sustainable way in which to begin a new venture. Well, yeah, and we can link that directly back to the statistic that does the rounds all the time, that 70% of all digital transformation projects fail. And why do they fail? Because bad leadership means that people do not follow. The people, the employees, the people in these organisations that are trying to change just aren't bought in. They don't keep up and therefore the, the project falls apart. It doesn't work. And I'm hopeful that this is a case in point where bad leadership and bad decisions are being taken and the rest of us just just won't follow. Um, but I think, you know, yes, we can we can link it all back to to digital. Anyway, I think we need a bit of a palate cleanser. So this is our interview with Dr. Vonda Vipolska, as we said, Executive Director at the Equality Trust. And we had a good conversation with Vonda that we'd like to play for you now. And we'll be back afterwards to give some thoughts. We are delighted to welcome Dr. Vonda Vipolska to the podcast today. She is Executive Director at the Equality Trust, the national charity that campaigns to reduce social and economic inequality. She is a visiting research fellow at the University of York, a trustee of Akivo, Red Thread Youth and Equally Ours and Governor of a Primary School. She is also a regular keynote speaker and sits on or has advised a range of bodies such as the Akivo Race Advisory Panel, the Fight Inequality Alliance Steering Group, the Sheila McKechnie Foundation Social Power Review, NUS Poverty Commission and the Sex Education Forum Advisory Group. She has over a decade of experience working in the trade union movement, leading on equalities, social mobility and education policy, and she is a highly experienced campaigner. She's a TEDx speaker, has spoken at the United Nations, York Festival Ideas and chaired a panel at the Women of the World Festival. You may also have seen her regularly commenting in the media, 
having appeared on Newsnight, The Moral Maze, Sky News, The Big Questions, and also writing for The Guardian, HuffPost and The Independent, amongst many others. She was a Starham Senior Scholar at Hertford College, Oxford, where she was awarded a doctorate in European history and subsequently published her first book, Witchcraft in Early Modern Poland, 1500-1800 in 2013. It was shortlisted for the Catherine Briggs Folklore Award. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Zoe. I feel a bit embarrassed uh, with that introduction. it's amazing it just shows all the fantastic things you've achieved and also I feel a bit lacking now because I haven't prepared a question about witchcraft when I I feel that's a a gap in the podcast guest so far frankly but thank you for for helping us realize that too thank you so much for coming so we're very very excited to speak to you not least because as our winner of winners on the social ceos award last year i i know how good you are at digital and and your understanding of how to use it as part of campaigning and raising awareness of how we need to do more about edi across the sector and beyond um is is absolutely brilliant So let's begin at the beginning, though. I'd love to hear a bit more about your role at the Equality Trust. Well, I think it's really like anybody who runs a small organisation or particularly a charity. You know, it can vary from the really mundane sort of, you know, copying your receipts and all of that sort of stuff to absolutely fantastic events like speaking at the UN on behalf of our young people. So it's very, very varied. One minute we're looking at gender inequality or gender pay gaps, ethnic minority pay gaps. And the next minute, you know, we're looking at talking to businesses about how they can enact fair pay practices. And then another day might be talking to the sector about race inequality or other types of inequalities. So it's no day is ever the same. And it's always quite unpredictable what's going to happen each day, which I think I quite like. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's the exciting thing about running a small charity, isn't it? No two days are the the same. And and there's so many different things you have to get involved in. And I'd love to hear about your journey and your charity's journey with digital during during the pandemic. What's changed and how have you been using it differently? Well, I think what happened was we didn't realise just how well we had been using digital in terms of the organisation. And that's all thanks to my brilliant finance and ops manager, Joe, who'd ensured that we were you know we were ready to go home we dismissed our staff and asked them to work from home a week before the official notice because you know we realized that people were feeling a bit trepidatious about coming in on the tube or traveling and we just thought it was the right thing to do and I'm just absolutely eternally grateful to her that we could just basically pack up our laptops and go home And what's been interesting is that recruiting a team over the last couple of months over Zoom and, you know, having those experiences of of asking people what do they need in order to be able to work from home has really brought home to us that, you know, once you've got a laptop and maybe a printer, that's really all most people need. Obviously, we need to make sure that people have a good working space, etc. But it's, it's astonishing, really, you know, the amount of paperwork in the office that we had that we just haven't looked at for 12 months is, is really quite astonishing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's the thing is organisations realising how much of a, a change that they've made during this time. And I know that remote working will have been a, a, a big focus of this as well. And, and that's a particular um, area of interest for, for Paul. And I think you've got a question about that, haven't you, Paul? Yeah, so I was just going to ask, knowing what you know now, there's two parts to this question, I guess. So the first is, how has remote working changed your leadership style during the pandemic? And what have you had to change in order to 
you know maintain the organization's momentum and, and keep everyone connected and together and the second point i guess is what's going to be the stuff that you keep you've just mentioned that you've got uh, huge amounts of paper that you haven't touched for a, a year so how intentional are you going to be about sort of casting that out and keeping the new ways of working so I think in terms of leadership, remote working is really quite difficult because, you know, getting to know new staff in particular and also being able to lead on things like strategy. You know, I mean, I I hate post-it notes. You know, if somebody gets a flip chart out and asks me to write post-it notes, I absolutely always hated it. But now I really miss that. I miss being together in a room and those ideas that just spark off each other and, you know, half-heard conversations. I mean, we've run campaigns on the basis of, you know, listening to someone's conversation and then having a chat afterwards so that's the bit I really really miss and it's really hard if you're trying to have a strategy meeting that is on zoom that is you know not as interactive as it might be um, and although obviously we do have interactive whiteboards and that sort of thing just that spark is isn't there you know the chats that you have over lunch and the sort of spontaneous thoughts that come through and I think that really makes a difference in terms of campaigning organizations I think also that we have been much more personal in a sense, you know, the personal has become the professional in some ways. And we are all, you know, we all have either caring responsibilities or equally people who are living alone might feel more lonely. So the pandemic has affected our home lives because we are working from home. Then this obviously is affecting our work lives and and learning, I think, to take more of life into work and hopefully trying to take less of work into life is really difficult. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges for all of us. How many new staff have you taken on over the course of the pandemic? So we've just taken on three new staff and we have another three or four posts that are coming up in the near future. So, you know, it's a complete refresh of the team because we were very much programme funded. And then people who didn't live in London decided for obvious reasons that they didn't want to be coming back into London and, you know, looked for jobs where they where they were living closer to home. So I think it's, you know, it's been really, really interesting to do it at this time to employ people that you've never met apart from over Zoom. And also we've had a board refresh so our board were I think had one physical meeting together before we went into the pandemic so again building up that relationship between the board members building the relationship up between me and the board and now with new staff you know it's all about building those relationships but doing it remotely so I think we have to be more creative about how we do these things as well. So that's so interesting because you mentioned that point there about how you build relationships with your board. And I know how critical that is as as the CEO and also how you build relationships with staff. And obviously that's such a huge challenge when everyone's having to work remotely. Do you have any top tips on how to do that? Well, I think it's really just that human interest isn't it it's if you can come together over common issues and obviously I'm very lucky because in my organization we all really care passionately about tackling inequality so you know we already have that sort of set of values that I think everybody identifies with but I what I found and I was doing the CLAW leadership program the to become a CLAW fellow last year and what I found was that the familiarity of meeting regularly really helped build those relationships and so there are quite a few of my cohort that I do actually feel quite close to and developed relationships with over Zoom that again I've never met but because we were regularly meeting and because we were you know always quite honest and quite open with each other as a cohort then I really felt that some of those relationships developed. So I think it's you know it's that mutual if everybody wants to make it work then we can make it work but I think it just takes a bit more regularity a bit more input really. 
probably much the same for us, Zoe, because I'm sure you as well as I have taken on clients and work with people over the course of the last year that you actually haven't physically met. And and actually, I was talking to a client the other day about how we should plan to change the way that we're working now, because in three, four months time, we might be able to meet in person, be in the office. And it's funny because you've got used to one way of working, which is very much offline. And then suddenly you're going to have to revert to something very familiar, but a little bit strange at the same time. Yes, that's going to be a big shift, isn't it? I, I was reflecting on that with some of our long-term clients, actually, what it's, actually, it's going to be like to see people face-to-face again. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I think there's lots of learnings, though, from this time, and it will be fascinating to see how people's behaviour changes and how they want to work in the future as, as well. And, and on that note, Bandar, I was just wondering... Has this time where obviously you changed how you use digital building on the successes that you've had before, has this got you thinking about how your organisation will use digital differently in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have about 20 local groups around the country at the Equality Trust. And what we've been able to do instead of having face-to-face meetings is to organise events and webinars that everybody can attend. So we've actually been able to have a much bigger geographical reach um, because obviously people can tune in from anywhere to the events that we hold. So we held one event and had about 800 people attend. So, you know, Obviously, we would not have that at a face-to-face meeting. So I think there are real opportunities there. And I think also in terms of staff and on our organisation, we, like many others, have stopped just recruiting people in London. So we have a local organiser who is just starting and she'll be in Birmingham. And then we have another member of staff who is on an island in Scotland. So <laughs> we've been able to be much more geographically spread out. And I think that can only be a good thing. And it's part of tackling regional inequality as well. So So hopefully many more people outside of London will get opportunities that have so far been really, you know, sort of squirreled away in London. Yes, because one of my concerns about the sector has always been that it feels very London centric. Do you think this time has changed that? Will change that further? Well, I think it's also connected to people realising that they don't need an office. And many small organisations I know have been quite relieved to just, you know, get rid of their office. I have to say that maybe I'm biased because my office is a 20 minute walk or a 10 minute cycle away from my house. So I do like to have that space. And having been homeschooling, you know, anyone who's been homeschooling, I think will recognise the the absolute sanctuary of getting away to an office that was empty. So we decided to keep our office because we also recognise that some of the people working for us or who might potentially come and work for us would want to have that space because if people are in shared houses or you know in accommodation that isn't suitable where everybody's trying to sort of work from the kitchen table then they would want to have that space so we did think long and hard about it and then realized that actually we did want to keep that office as a space for people I mean we've always you know encouraged people to work flexibly so if people want to come in one or two days a week then we've got that space and we've got the facilities to offer them that and I think that's really important. Just thinking about that as well, I think the the reverse works as well, doesn't it? So you give people that have, you know, I think lots of people that I I know and certainly within my my wife uh, runs a fairly big team and a lot of those people have decided that now's the time to relocate and move out of London as well as within. So because that need for the office just 
isn't there anymore. I completely agree with you. I think there's a hybrid model, isn't there? Completely understand the escaping from the kids and going and finding somewhere else. And I think that's the thing I miss more than anything at all is, is working with other people in the same room. And this podcast, as a case in point, was always designed to be Zoe and I coming in, meeting our guests uh, and talking to them in a, in a physical location face to face. And it just hasn't worked out that way. We all have had to, to deal with it. So what are your hopes and fears for the sector as, as it emerges from the pandemic? And do you think digital has a, a bigger role to play in all of this? Well, I think digital has a huge role to play, but as always, you know, it's access to digital, isn't it? It's, you know, mm -hmm. which organisations are really set up to do this. And obviously many smaller organisations and many grassroots organisations just don't have the know-how or the capacity uh, or the finances to really, you know, in encourage that. And I'm always struck by going to these sort of big conferences and listening to big charities saying, oh yeah, you know, this is what we did with digital. And they refer to their teams of six or 10 or whatever. And the rest of us are sitting there thinking, well, you know, it's no surprise you were able to do all of that and completely transform your work with digital when you know you've got those big teams but but I do think that digital can be used quite smartly by small organizations because you know if you take the use of Twitter for example I mean I went on maternity leave in 2009 and when I came back my job had been changed to digital and media officer and I was probably the only person in that building who didn't want to go on Twitter who hated Facebook who thought you know these things were just awful but once I realized the campaigning capacity you know and the potential in terms of campaigning of these new tools then I really really got on board and I became really enthusiastic and so I think you know you can build up a voice you can build up connections you can build up coalitions I mean I've actually been very lucky and we received funding from the John Elliman Foundation to set up a coalition of organisations that wanted to examine and tackle structural inequalities. And that's because I sent a really sarky tweet probably around <laughs> this time <laughs> last year, which was, you know, when Michael Marmot's 10 years on on his health inequalities report came out, everybody was retweeting it. And I just sort of sarkily said, well, you know, if everybody who retweeted this wanted to join an inequality alliance, you know, we'd really get somewhere. And then all sorts of people started saying, yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't we do it? And then I went to John Elliman and they gave us funding and, you know, we're, we're starting that off. So, you know, never underestimate the power of a sarcastic tweet, I think is probably going to be on my gravestone. It's a, it's a dangerous time for sarcastic tweets as well. In fact, it's probably a dangerous time for any kind of tweets. And I was just going to ask you, do you think I was a massive Twitter advocate right at the beginning and it was sort of 2008 2000, through through sort of the mid 2010, 15. And I have to say that I've I've sort of moved away from it just because especially at the moment in the last few weeks in the last few months, in fact, in the last couple of years, I've just found it more and more damaging, I guess, to my mental well-being going in and having a look at it. But do you feel that with with Twitter in particular, do you think the, the positives are still outweighing the negatives for you and for the Equality Trust? I think it's really how you go into it and what you're prepared, you know, where your red lines are. And I'll give you a really good example. So I was lucky enough to be invited to appear on Question Time a couple of weeks ago. And I knew there was going to be trolling, you know, as a black woman going on TV and daring to have an opinion, you know, obviously I was mm -hmm. going to have to be put in my place. And that was Thursday night. There was trolling. It stopped by about Sunday. And what I realised was that a lot of it was people who just attack the programme anyway. A lot of it was 
not engaging with what I'd said. And some of it was just downright rude. But it was also, you know, to my mind, it was people that I didn't know whose opinions I didn't value. And the flip side of it, and I won't deny, you know, it's obviously not very nice to be called certain things on Twitter. But the flip side of it for me was that once people knew that I was appearing on Question Time, so many people in the sector and so many people across all walks of life got in touch and said, you know, we're really supporting you. It's great that you're on it. If you need any help or support, let me know. You know, it was just incredible. And I was really, really embraced by the sector. And for me, that really outweighed what had happened. So I think, you know, it's it's not great, obviously. And nobody wants to just be attacked for having an opinion and going on air. But I think it did really pull out the fact that, you know, a lot of people were really supportive and were willing to sort of come out and support me. And that really made a difference to me. That's such a positive and refreshing take on what I know from my own experience can be a really difficult thing to be on the end of on on Twitter when you're getting some some really negative comments. Is there anything that you would advise other charity leaders in in that situation when you are getting a lot of negativity, some some trolling, and 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 I know as well how upsetting it can feel. As you say, you can focus on the people whose opinion really matters to you. Is there any other advice you'd give to anyone out there who may be right in the middle of a situation like that right now? Well, I think it's really, you know, think long and hard about just not looking at Twitter at that point, because, you know, these things pass. And if you leave it long enough, you don't have to see it or get someone else to look at your Twitter feed and to make sure, actually, that there isn't anything that really should be reported. I would also recommend, of course, you know, talking to people like Glitch and to make sure that you do report this. I mean, you know, at one point, and this wasn't to do with question time, but at one point somebody had said, you know, I'd I'd said, wouldn't it be a good idea if black footballers went on strike for a day? And somebody who was a Liverpool fan like me, so I was really annoyed, um, said, you know, why don't you go back home? And I said, well, I would go back to Chester, but there's a lockdown at the moment, so it's a bit difficult. And sometimes, you know, you can just fob things off like that. But somebody else actually said, OK, I've reported that guy. And I think, you know, that is appropriate. I think we need, if we're going to engage on Twitter, then we need to know how to report these things and to make sure that, you know, some action is taken. And I know it's really difficult because there is not a good response very often from Twitter. I'm thinking of, you know, Sangeeta Maiska and other people who've just had responses from Twitter that have been wholly inadequate. So I think, you know, it's like anything. I could walk into a room and say something and have people put their hands up and disagree. It probably wouldn't be with as much vitriol as people seem to, you know, use on Twitter. But I think also we need to realise that not everybody agrees with us. And there is such a huge echo chamber that we live in at the moment that sometimes it comes as a bit of a shock. Now, I'm not, you know, conflating that with trolling and with insults and abuse, but I think we do have to recognise that either we we do want to argue our case or we don't and we just leave it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's having that context, isn't it, about how the way we think in the charity sector is not the way that lots of people out there are thinking, isn't it? And that can be a bit of a, a really important thing for us all, all to know, because I, I know exactly what you mean. I think that um, much as I, I love the sector, sometimes we do look inwards when we should be looking outwards. 
Well, exactly. And it's, you know, it's a classic thing of let's get an article in The Guardian, no disrespect to The Guardian, but, you know, yes, our supporters will read it and that will be great because they see us in The Guardian. But actually you want to influence the people who aren't supportive. You want to change the opinions and you want to get the hearts and minds that, you know, aren't necessarily with you. So preaching to the converted all the time, actually as a comms person gets really boring. You know, you want a bit more of a challenge. You want to get into an arena where, you know, you can shift something because we don't shift and we we don't get changed through talking to people who agree with us. Yeah, and I think that's part of the parcel. I think we've discussed that on on this podcast before. You know, the things like the algorithms don't hurt you. I was just writing, uh, drafting a, a junk post earlier on, but it was a post about listening to music while I worked, and I realised that at the end of a, an album on Spotify, the album, the algorithms will continue to play songs that are related to stuff that I've listened to. Most of it is within my my own little echo chamber. So things that I've liked, things that I've listened to in the past, artists I've liked, and all that sort of stuff. You have to try really hard to move outside of that and go and find some something new or or connect something new and, and they do a good job at sort of pointing in the right direction and i get a playlist every every week with new music it's kind of the same with twitter and social media isn't it that the the algorithms keep playing back to you the, the popular stuff within your network so you have to go out of your way to go and find those opinions and find those differences um they make themselves all too known when you say something that crosses their path and they don't like, but going actually out there and, and finding them to engage with can be much harder because we're, we're sort of so stuck in our, our sort of echo chambers is, is completely the right word. Yeah. And I think very often, you know, we take comfort from it. You know, there's a reason why it's called mm. where that, why they're called likes or why we have followers yeah. um, because, you know, we all, we all want to be the Messiah <laughs> for want of a better word. Yeah. Um, so, you know, why would we go out there and, and follow people who are, are not going to be nice to us or who are, you know, not going to hold our opinions. So I think, you know, as a charity CEO, you really need to know what those opinions are. Mm. You need to be following, you know, whether it's political or whether it's in your space or, you know, whatever your space is, then you need to be following those opinions because otherwise you're not really doing your job properly, are you? If you're just listening to the people who agree with your policy and with your strategy, you know, you need to test it and you need to challenge it and you need to think around in a way that when you do a media interview, you know, you think around the questions that they're going to ask you and you sort of you know play devil's advocate with yourself then you really should be doing the same as a as a charity ceo otherwise people get complacent and i think we've seen a lot of that in the sector over the last 10 or 20 years and speaking of understanding different perspectives i know you and i have talked quite a lot about diversity across the, the sector and how we can make it more more inclusive what's your take on how we can help charities move forward with this well i think I think it's got to be impact, not optics. And what I mean by that is there's a huge rush to recruit black and Asian people onto boards, into leadership positions, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, I jokingly said to a friend, there has never been a better time to be a black woman. Seriously, you know, all the jobs and trusteeships and things that come your way because people are looking at optics. And that's not to say that Black and Asian people aren't supremely well qualified, if not overqualified to do these jobs. But there is a rush in the name of diversity to do this. And I think one of the problems there is that if you don't change the culture of the organisation, you're bringing people into a culture that is just going to be quite traumatic and disastrous. And I think we've seen that. We've seen this rush to recruitment as the solution to everything, but not actually changing internally. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of work, a lot of 
of consultancy work with the Equality Trust lately with organisations who want to take those longer term, more structural steps and to really examine themselves and see where they can make the change at a diversity level in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of protected characteristics, and to really interrogate themselves and their practices rather than just sort of rush to, oh, we need a couple of trustees and, you know, we need a couple of high profile appointments because, you know, the sector is in a state of, I would say, you know, meltdown on this with new revelations, with new things happening, new things coming out almost every day. And it's really, really exhausting for a lot of people in the sector that are having to carry the burden and who are being turned to for their emotional labour to sort out the problems. So, you know, we've got a long, long way to go. And I think there are still reaches of the sector where these things aren't really talked about and where there is really lip service paid rather than real change. I agree. I think there is a, a huge, huge way for the, the sector to go. And I, I think the beginning of that journey is acknowledging that we have got a really long way to go. And I'd like to see more leaders across the sector like you really, really saying that that, that that has to happen. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a really fantastic sort of core group of leaders that are doing that. And I think, you know, we are really trying to use our platforms in as much as we can to try and influence. And it was one of the reasons that I wanted to set up that alliance on structural inequalities, because I think it's absolutely essential that we start to look not just at putting the bandages on. So if you're a poverty charity and you're, you know, giving out food, then take a step back and look at why you're having to give people food and then take a step back and look at the, the geography the regional issues, you know, the economic issues and start trying to deal with those as well. Because otherwise we are really stuck in this sort of Victorian model of handing out charity to people without actually trying to tackle the root causes of, you know, of all of the issues that we care about and that we're dedicated to fighting in this sector. It's always been a mystery to me why people are happy to put the bandages on, but don't want to think about how the wound occurred or what the root causes of these issues are. So do you think then that as a sector to be truly inclusive, systemically, structurally, we need to change? Absolutely. I mean, we have come from that Victorian model and we still have those power dynamics, you know, whether it's with funders and grantees or whether it's with charities and beneficiaries. And there are some really good pockets of good practice and some really good, you know, really good work from funders. And, you know, I've just been made a trustee of Esme Fairburn and I'm really delighted that, you know, one of their key parts of strategy now is looking at structural inequalities. And, you know, I know many other funders are doing this as well. So I think there is change, but it's those sort of relationships that are transactional rather than relational that we need to really look at. And also, you know, there's a real anomaly of of who the beneficiaries are and who the leaders are. So, you know, in many, many areas, you have a lot of beneficiaries that may be working class people or black or Asian people or women, and the sectors just aren't led by people that come from those backgrounds. So there's a real disconnect and I think one of the things for me as well is, is the sort of real huge focus on, you know, producing policies and expecting governments to read a policy paper and then change what they're doing. Because, you know, we know that change doesn't necessarily come that way. So I think there's lots of different processes and methods and theories of change that the sector is very comfortable about, but which really aren't necessarily able to show much impact. Yes, absolutely. I think it's time for radical change, isn't it? And and big change in, in how we do things. Paul, do you have any other questions? No, I don't think so. I was just going to um, say I've just joined my local community trust as a as a trustee and already sort of starting to think about 
well, looking at the group of trustees that I'm I'm working with and looking at who's involved in the in the trust day to day and just thinking about what I need to do and, and what I should be pushing for from a from an equality, from a diversity point of view. But interestingly, when I had my sort of my interview, uh, one of the questions I asked was about root cause. And even with a tiny, tiny team of people, they have sort of three full time members of staff working in a in a system at the moment where they, they give grants and, and last ditch money to local residents who are facing things like poverty, escaping from abusive relationships and all sorts of different things like that. One of the biggest issues they're facing is poverty. And I, you know, I can't speak for, for Zoe, but you know, I live in Hemel Hempstead where I, I live at the moment. You know, I, I don't see poverty on my doorstep. But I don't have to go too far to be able to see it. And so I was talking to them about this and they said, look, even as a small charity with three full time staff, we want to do absolutely everything that we can do to to help to end the poverty cycle. But I guess at the end of the day, you're fighting fire with fire, aren't you? Trying to help people as much as you can and then take a backward step or back step and, and just really think about how you best help people to, to combat the, the root cause and these things. So not really a question, just a, a sort of a comment on what was what we were discussing. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's very typical, isn't it? you have three people who are doing their very best to sort out things on the ground but they realize that the bigger problem is you know in work poverty or the education mm-hmm. system which means that not everybody gets a fair chance at education and then we know how that impacts on their incomes and at the end of the day all of this is about income it's about you know having enough money to live to live securely to have good accommodation to be able to take advantage of, of a good education system and then have a fair wage and I think you know one of the big problems that people don't really talk about in the sector is wages. You know, the stagnation of wages since for the longest period since the Napoleonic era means that people's wages have been going down and means that even though people are working, they are still in poverty. So, you know, now we have the privilege of working for our poverty. That points to a very, very broken system. And I think the sort of the reports that come around every week and one of the stories that caught my eye the other day was, you know, a father of, uh, I think, two, three children um, and supporting, supporting his his wife who didn't work you know, came into the the trust to um ask for some help to buy a pair of boots so he could walk to the building site where he worked and work safely and that's 15 pounds you know 15 pounds for a pair of boots just enabled that family to to live to you know to be able to to sort of live safely and allow that that person to go in and find work so sometimes it's it's tiny 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 little things that we we need to to correct and other times it's it's massive systemic change Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's indicative of of the problems. You know, there are many, many kids who've got one set of school uniforms. So while that's drying, they don't go to school because they haven't got a spare one. I mean, all of these stories, I, I used to work in an education union, and we would hear all of these stories from teachers, you know, kids going to school without having breakfast or barely sort of clothed and and the cost of a pair of shoes can be absolutely crippling never mind if your boiler goes or something like that so we know that around six or seven million I can't quite remember the figures at the moment of households have fewer than 500 pounds in saving so you know they would go into debt if they needed to pay for something like a boiler and that's a really really precarious position to be in. Thank you so much for an absolutely fantastic interview. We've we've loved talking to you and we've learned loads and I know that our listeners will have too. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much to Vonda for a great discussion. We hope you enjoyed it. Any feedback and any questions that you might have, don't be afraid to post them in our social media feeds.
Yes, absolutely. Huge thanks to Vonda for a a great interview and for getting us thinking about social media, the role that leaders play in moving their organisations forward with digital and why we really need to embed inclusion into our approaches to digital transformation. And talking of inclusion, one thing that we were remiss in not mentioning last week when we had the discussion about Facebook and and Nick Clegg and all that good stuff was just to draw your attention to the Netflix film. It was on Netflix in the UK. I'm not sure it's a Netflix film, but a documentary called Coded Bias, which is about uh, how an MIT researcher found flaws in the facial recognition technology. And I think it fits well with what we discussed last week. But also this was the, the research, I think, that led to the likes of IBM stepping out of the facial recognition market if you like and stopping developing those products because of the inequalities and the way that in particular the systems ignored black faces because they were built by people that didn't look like that so again it's uh, something that we should pay attention to. Zoe you wanted to recommend some viewing as well. I very much wanted to recommend A Promising Young Woman, which uh, we saw at the weekend. It's a really shocking, very dark analysis of misogyny and complicity. It's pretty disturbing, but it's very, very, very much worth seeing and definitely something that's going to kickstart a lot of very important conversations. So I would highly recommend it. And it's getting lots of award nods as well. It is, yes. And it started a, a massive debate online about the topics in, in the film, which is, I think, what it was intended to do. So absolutely, definitely something which I think everyone needs to see. And just before the podcast started, we started recording the podcast. I did say that we could talk about Line of Duty, but Zoe came out as not having ever watched an episode. Shockingly, yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy to admit that and to go on the record. Hopefully we won't lose too many listeners as a result. Um, <laughs> it's not that I don't want to watch it. It's just that I think I've missed the boat on it. Perhaps at some point I'll be able to catch up. One of our listeners, at least, my wife, is clapping because you are joining her in the very small WhatsApp group called People That Have Not Watched Line of Duty. And she's constantly sort of batting back the um, the people that say, oh, you're not watching it and having that conversation. So she'll be very pleased that there is somebody else out there that doesn't want to talk about Line of Duty. So we'll end that one here. So thank you very much to listening to episode four of season three. We'll be back next week with another episode. As usual, please send us your feedback. Uh, We'd love to hear about anything that you feel you will do differently after hearing from any of our speakers in the series. You can share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter. We're at starts at the top one. That's at starts at the top one. Or you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. See you next time.